At this time, the children are dismissed for children's church. If you're a child up through fourth grade, you are welcome to depart. Uh, The rest of us, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, even though we had um, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, just a few weeks ago, we are entering a period where we talk about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem today. So John chapter 12, we'll be reading John chapter 12, verses 12 through 25. Um, Last week, we saw that at the beginning of John chapter 12, we saw that there was uh, a feast or a gratitude banquet that was held at Lazarus, uh, by by Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha at uh, Simon the leper's house. And we see that um, actually Jesus was, um, had a coronation where uh, Mary took a a jar of expensive uh, perfume and she you know, anointed Jesus' uh, feet with this perfume. Uh, and today we are talking about um, Jesus' triumphal entry. So John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, I'll read through verse 26. Um, and I want you to see this idea um, that now Jesus is going to say, my hour has now come. It's time. It's time for me to reveal myself to the world and for me to save the world, quite frankly. So John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. So is it time? Is it time? Think about this. Uh, One of the ways that we have heard that, uh, we hear it in many different ways, but Specifically, I think about when my wife had told me at different times, at least four different times in our marriage, it's time. It's time. And you know what I'm talking about when we talk about, you know, it's time, and all of a sudden the the husband goes into a flurry of activity because he knows that now his pregnant wife is about to deliver a baby. And we think about that, that it is time, or it's time, or, you know, I don't know if your wife might, like, you know, honey, wake up, it's time. You know, or if she says, get on up, it's time, it's time to go, right? 
We understand that. There's an, an anticipation that comes uh, from this. Even think about this. When we think about a baby coming, and, and now we're uh, on the other side of that being new grandparents, but uh, there's great expectation and there's preparation coming for a newborn in the family, right? Great preparation. Some of you have just gone through that. Some of you standing in the back. You know, I see Alex there, you know, holding little Archie, you know, as he shrinks down, which is very hard for Alex to do. You know, thinking about all of the preparation that it takes. Think about this. Um, uh, you, you have to confirm the pregnancy. You have to choose an obstetrician. You know, then you have to figure out um, if you're going to decide whether or not to be surprised at 20 weeks or at 40 weeks about the gender of that child. And, if, you know, and for us, we always found out because people were like, well, don't you want to be surprised? And I'm like, I was surprised. I didn't know what the baby was at 20 weeks, and you know, there's enough surprises on the back end that I figured we might as well just figure out what to know and how to pray for the baby. But you know, whatever you do, that's fine. But if you do, then you got to figure out some elaborate scheme to let everybody else know what the baby is or what the baby isn't. You got to like make a bake a blue cake or bake a pink cake or like have these balloons, and or you have to like set off something with dynamite or fireworks or you know shoot something or there's some elaborate way and it has to be new. And you're again, you're anticipating, and then in the midst of the anticipation. You also have to begin to you know, build um, sort of a, a nursery for the child. And so, you know, if you're, if you're a young dad and it's the first time you put a crib together, you realize, man, there's a lot of pieces of this thing. And then your wife comes and she goes, hey, is the crib put together? And you're like, yes. He's like, what about all those extra screws there? I'm like, oh, they're just extra. They're fine. You know, the baby will be fine. I, I'm sure that this thing is sturdy, you know. And then if you have to move the crib and everything else, and you're, and you're getting everything ready, and, you, and you're excited, and, and then you even have to go to classes because you thought for that, you know, I don't know, for 22, 23 years, you knew how to breathe, but apparently you didn't. It's a whole new way of learning how to breathe, right? Like, you know what I mean? All of these things that you're working out, right? And you're, you're, you're learning things that you've never seen before, and Everything is anticipatory, and you're, and you're excited about it, and, and, and the whole family is excited about it. And then you actually get your hospital bag together, and then you're, you're waiting. And then if you're a mom who's waiting for this baby, you have these irrational thoughts that come out to be like, what happens if the baby never comes out? Like, what, what happens then? Like, I might be pregnant the rest of my life. And then most young moms have this thought that, oh yeah, I'm definitely going to go early. I'm definitely going to go early with this baby because the baby has to come out, which is almost always just a false lie that women tell themselves, hoping that the baby will come early. And, and sometimes, you know, the Lord is gracious and done that. But then it all brings up, it all is anticipatory for this point where the, the, the pregnant wife turns to her husband and says, it's time. The hour has come. All the preparation, it's all here. And this is what we see in the midst of the triumphal entry right now into Jerusalem. You see, it is time. It is time for Jesus to be revealed. It is time for Jesus to be inaugurated into his kingdom. It is time for Jesus to show what type of king he is going to be. You see, the, the triumphal entry that we see in, in verse 12 is Jesus enters into uh, Jerusalem where the people and the crowds shout out Hosanna. And Hosanna means save us. Save us. So that Jesus comes in on a donkey and they cry out, save us. And they're waving palm branches. Now, they say, say Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. I want you to think about this. They're, they're quoting... Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, which says, 
Um, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, as they're waving the palm branches around, the palm branches are actually um, in a similar way to, for us to think about if, if we were to go to a parade and if everybody had a, uh, an American flag and everybody is waving an American flag. It is the palm branch in this particular case is representing sort of a sense of nationalism for Israel. It represents nationalism in this way. About a hundred years prior, Judas Maccabeus drove out the Greeks from the temple. And in the midst of driving out the Greeks, uh, the palm branches became symbols of the political aspirations of the people of Israel. So as we wave palm branches, they're saying that they're hoping that Jesus would be like Judas Maccabeus and he would throw off the shackles of the Romans. And the palm branch had actually been used in um, Israelite currency to give a sense of nationalism for Israel. So they're thinking, yes, Jesus is coming in, he is our king, but he does something that is remarkable here. You see, what Jesus does is look at what happens in verse 15, and it's the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Well, what does that mean? Well, first it means that he actually fulfills the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9 that we read in the Old Testament passage. And that as he's riding in on a donkey, what he's saying is, I am not this warrior king who's going to bring a militaristic victory to the people of Israel, but rather I am gentle and lowly in heart, that I will be with you in compassion and gentleness. And yes, I will be victorious over all of your and my enemies, however, I will do that in a way that is remarkable. Now, at the same time, or in a very short order, there would be another person who was in charge, and that would be Pontius Pilate, who would actually be riding into the other side of Jerusalem in the midst of the Passover. But when he came, he would be riding on a white charger, and he would be accompanied by an army, by all of the armed Romans. And as he comes in to be in the city to make sure that the city does not rebel and revolt, there is a contrast that John uses. Because see, Jesus enters in on a donkey and a colt, but Pontius Pilate rides in with an army at his back. You see, Jesus is gentle. And the same crowd, now get this too, the same crowd that actually says, Hosanna, save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is the same crowd that four days later will be shouting at the top of their lungs, crucify him, crucify him. You see, the fickleness of the crowd being carried along by the day. We have to be careful about not being carried along by the crowd. They were shouting for Jesus because of his miracles. There's an allure for that. So what does this Old Testament passage mean? It means that Jesus, in the midst of coming into Jerusalem, means that he will bring peace to the earth. That fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, that Jesus would be the salvation that the Lord had promised back in the Old Testament, that he would bring peace and he would bring a reconciled relationship between God and man, between a sinful man 
and a holy God. And the only way that he can do that is through his death on the cross. You know, some people would actually say that the throne that Jesus took for himself was actually the cross, is that the cross became a throne for Jesus. Nobody wants a throne like that. Nobody wants to do that. But Jesus did because he loved us and he died on the cross for us. Now, we think about this idea of Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 28. You know, Jesus reveals his heart to his disciples when he says, Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know, within that verse, it talks about the gentleness, the compassion of Jesus. You see, Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh or reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but it's open arms. Where Jesus welcomes all those who are burdened and heavy laden. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will reconcile the relationship between God and you. Come to me and I will give you purpose for your life. I will give you meaning for what this, this whole world means. I will begin to change everything. That's what Jesus is saying when he comes in. When he comes in in the midst of the triumphal entry. When all the palm branches are being waved, he's saying, come on in. Now, there will be another Palm Sunday. We read about that in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says this. Um, let me turn to it. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That will be another Palm Sunday where Jesus will be ruling and reigning. Now, the, the beauty of what we see in the midst of Jesus going to the cross for us is also found in, in, in the book of uh, Colossians when it talks about Jesus being the firstborn among the dead. Now, when we think about Lazarus, again, all of this is happening in John chapter 12. John chapter 11 is the great miracle where Lazarus is raised from the tomb, and that is foreshadowing Jesus' resurrection from his tomb. And in John chapter 12, um, all the people are coming, not because of Jesus per se, but because Jesus has done a miracle to Lazarus. So they're like, I, I got to see this guy. Let's see what other tricks he has up his sleeve. What's he going to do? And so what we see is that Jesus is foreshadowing his own resurrection when he goes to the cross and when he dies for our sins. The, the victory that we have and why we celebrate Easter and the resurrection is the resurrection says that Jesus defeated sin and death. He defeated and took the penalty for our sins, but then he was raised to glory. He won. And when we think about this, um, the book of Colossians says he's the firstborn from among the dead. And that firstborn is actually this Greek word um, where we get um, our word prototype. And a prototype is the first in sort of um, being the first widget 
or car or whatever it is along an assembly line. It's the first one, the prototype. You see, Jesus is the prototype. His resurrection was the prototype so that when we trust and believe in Jesus, even though we die, yet we will rise again in the last resurrection. You see, without the resurrection, there is no joy in Christianity. Without the resurrection, we should all be playing golf today, right now. And if you are playing golf and you're doing this via, you know, via like, um, if, you're, if you're watching it later, you should be here anyway. Um, but we should be enjoying the day. But it's because of the resurrection, we worship and we believe and we trust and we love the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, his hour had come. Now, I want you to see this. Um, actually, before I do that, let me quote Tim Keller, who says this about Jesus. When you find him, when you find Jesus, he will satisfy. And when you fail him, he will forgive you. Isn't that sweet about Jesus? Is that when you find him, he will satisfy you. And when you fail him, he will forgive you. But he says, not so the world. In the world that promises satisfaction, when you achieve something, it will not satisfy you. But if you fail the world, it will cancel you. That's the difference between Jesus and the world. That's the difference between the king that we see here. Now, the other difference, and again, John uses a lot of contrasting things going on here. One of the thoughts is, um, one of the things that's in the, in the news today even, is the coronation of King Charles. Like, you see it, right? Like, I, I don't care about King Charles getting coronated. I just, it's everywhere. Like, people in England are crazy for this. And it's estimated that his coronation will cost well over $100 million dollars in order for him to be crowned a figurehead for Great Britain. He has no authority. He has very, actually, little responsibility. And yet they're going to spend all of this. And yet what we see is a, a contrast, a juxtaposition between the king of kings riding gentle and lowly on a donkey, compassionate, s- serving, and then dying on the cross. Now what's interesting is that we see this in, in terms of the idea that the hour for Jesus to, is come. The hour for him, the time for Jesus to re- reveal himself as the Messiah. Notice what happens. And, and I don't think the crowds understood this and the disciples didn't understand it either. You know why I know that? Look at verse 16. Disciples did not understand these things. That's pretty much how it works, guys. Like I, I didn't, you, didn't, you don't have to learn Greek to figure that one out, all right? They didn't get it. But notice what happens. But when the, when, when the hour has come, the crowd did this because of Jesus. Now, all of these things are happening. So the Pharisees said, look, everybody's going after him. The world is going after him. But in verse 20, now those among who, who went up to the worship of the feast were some Greeks. So these Greeks came to Philip, and Philip went to Andrew, and they, and they told Jesus, and they, were, they brought him to Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, what's interesting about this is that if you remember in John, in three other places, look at, turn with me in your Bibles. If you have your Bibles open, turn over in John chapter 2, verse 4. John chapter 2, verse 4. After Jesus turns water into wine, his first miracle at the wedding at Cana, he turns all the water into wine. 
And Jesus, um, and, and Jesus' mother says to him before the miracle happens, uh, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, again, um, uh, I don't want any children or husbands memorizing that verse and taking it out of context. I can just see it now. You know, like my wife asked me to take the garbage out, and I quote to her, woman, my hour has not yet come. It is not here. You know, it would not end. Well, my wife's not even here today. She's serving in the back, so she, um, she, but she understands that it would not end well. You know, nor should children, you know, like, hey, it's time for you to clean your room. Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I'm here to tell you, children, your hour has come. It's, it's, it's about to come. Now, so he says there, look at verse, chapter 7, verse 30. Chapter 7, verse 30, he says this. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The external authorities wanted to lay hands on Jesus, but his hour had not yet come, so he was able to slip away. We also find this in chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 8, verse 20 says this. Um, and when he talks about being the light of the world, you know, where he says, these words he spoke to the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So what John is doing is John is building anticipation right now. He's building it up. And all of a sudden, John chapter 12, he goes, it's time. The hour has now come for me to be revealed. The hour has now come so that I might save the world. Now, how does he do that, and what does it mean? We see that the, the idea that the hour for Jesus to bear much fruit occurs in the midst of his own death. So how does the death of Jesus bear fruit? It's in this way, is that when, when Jesus dies on the cross, he makes a way for us to be saved. He is the sacrifice that we need to save us from all of our sins and transgressions. Now, he uses this image. He says, the hour has, has come for the Son of Man to be glorified in verse 23. And then in verse 24, he says this. He says, truly, truly. And I've been saying that since we started the Gospel of John. 25 times, he says, truly, truly. And when Jesus says, truly, truly, it's time to perk up and pay attention. It happens throughout the Gospel of John. Truly, truly means Jesus is about to say something really, really spectacular and to reveal himself. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It bears much fruit. Now, let me give you um, an illustration of that. Again, many of us do not uh, farm. We do not eat what we grow, but rather we uh, go to the grocery store or whatever pickup that we might have in order to get our, our groceries. But if you're in a farming, an agricultural you know, family, or you know, which was going on then, I want you to know this, that one seed has great potential. Did you know that one seed of corn can get you about 2,800 seeds in one harvest? In one harvest. One seed of corn you know, one stalk of corn, and then that corn, you know, corn, you know, corn cob, corn cob, corn cob. Think about all of those seeds that's bearing, right? So that means that in one planting season, one 
corn seed can yield 2,800, that means that the following year we could get somewhere around 7 million seeds in two growing seasons. And so what he's saying is the power of a seed dying and being covered has great power. In a similar way, not, not to the same extent, but like sunflowers, I just looked up to see what a sunflower, one sunflower seed can produce about a thousand sunflower seeds on a stalk of, of a sunflower, which means in two generations, if you do the math right, and I think I did, it comes up with a million seeds. One seed in two generations can yield that great a harvest. You see, what Jesus is saying is, when I die, I will bring many to faith and provide a way for my followers to be with me forever. You see, the cross becomes a throne for Jesus. And we, and we see this, this idea, again, this idea of, of prototype, you know, that Jesus is the firstborn, and then he says, uh, if you die, um, if I die, then I will be able to bring you to myself. Now, I think what Jesus is calling us to is this idea of calling us to death. But before I go there, um, and this, this seed analogy, I had, had a couple, um, I just want to throw these up if, if they're up there. Um, there's a couple of things. This is the parable of the sower um, from Van Gogh. Uh, it's a beautiful painting, and it just reminds me that as the people of God, we are called to be like Andrew. Because in this particular story, notice that the Greeks come to Philip, Philip goes to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip then take the Greeks to go see Jesus. But Andrew is a remarkable individual in the Bible in a couple of different ways, because Andrew uh, was the, one of the first disciples, and when Andrew heard about Jesus, what does he do in, um, in the Gospel of John? He actually goes and finds his brother, Simon Peter. And he says in, in, in John chapter 1, he says, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Come with me. I want to show him to you. The other thing that, that he does is in John chapter 6, when everybody, uh, when Jesus is, Jesus is feeding the 5,000, what Andrew does is Andrew actually brings the little boy who has the loaves and fishes, and he brings him to Jesus. And so there's a beautiful picture of Andrew, as Andrew is pretty much the sower. He's scattering seeds, and he's saying, here, I hope these seeds germinate, and all of this is meant for Jesus. Now, the other picture that I have, uh, that's another Van Gogh. That's actually of the harvest. Uh, that's actually in our house. Um, by the way, the one in our house is an original. Uh, it's, it's a reproduction. Um, just so you know, just so you know. Um, and, but but I, I love this picture because it reminds me that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And that we as the people of God are meant to be people who are sowing seeds on a regular basis. We're casting seeds of the gospel, casting seeds, but, and you can turn those off now, uh, but there's also a sense in which we are also called to come and die, to come and die ourselves. Now, I think as we think about this idea of coming and die, I, I want to ask us this question today. Is it time to evaluate what I love? Is it time to evaluate what I love? When, in the midst of verse 25 in John chapter 12, it says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, this is what Jesus says, and we need to clarify this. Here's what Jesus says, that we are not to love our lives, but to hate our life in the world. We need to understand this rightly. Jesus is not saying that we should hate life itself, nor 
that we should not love the good things that God has placed in this world. Jesus' meaning is made clear when we notice two different Greek words he uses for life. In verse 25, he says, whoever loves his life, he uses the word uh, pasuke, which we get our modern day term psychology. And he says uh, in verse 25, whoever loves his life, pasuke, loses it. And whoever hates his life, and he uses the same word, uh, pasuke, which again, um, this denotes um, a worldly way of thinking and feeling. That we are to reject the life of ego, the life of selfishness. But then when Jesus speaks of gaining eternal life, he uses the word um, essentially that we get you know, the name Zoe from which means life. And when joined to the word eternal, this refers to the divine life in us. So we are to turn from the former worldly ego to the latter, the divine life that enters us through the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sends. You see, what what he's calling us to do is he's calling us to follow him and to follow him in the sense that we die to self. J.C. Ryle says about the idea of following You know, in verse 26, it says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And he says this, as a soldier follows his general, as the servant follows his master, as the scholar follows his teacher, as the sheep follow its shepherd, just so ought the professing Christian to follow Christ. Faith and obedience are the leading marks of real followers and will always be seen in true believing Christians. Now, in the midst of this idea of of dying, I think, you know, I'm not talking about a physical death, but I'm talking about how do we die to self? How do we die to our own selfishness? Um, Let me, um, as we we think about that, let me me read um, just a a, a portion from uh, John Piper, who says this about a daily Christian living. He says, daily Christian living is daily Christian dying. The dying I have in mind is the dying of comfort and security and reputation and health and family and friends and wealth and homeland. These may be taken from us at any time in the path of Christ-exalting obedience. To die daily the way Paul did and to take up our cross daily the way Jesus commanded is to embrace this life of loss for Christ's sake and count it gain. In other words... The way we honor Christ in death is to treasure Jesus above the gift of life. And the way we honor Christ in life is to treasure Jesus above life's gifts. This is why Paul used the same word gain in relation to Christ at death and in relation to Christ in life. I love what he says there. The idea of, it's it's not, um, it's by putting the gift of Jesus. The way we honor Christ in life is to treasure Jesus above life's gifts. Now, um, I'm, I'm quoting from a, a little book that he, he wrote called Don't Waste Your Life. Some of you have read this book. Some of you are familiar with it. Some of you might not be. And, and here's, um, we, have, we have a misunderstanding in terms of how we apply uh, this idea of dying to self and living for Jesus. And really what John is trying to say is, if you will die to self and live for Jesus, then your life will be full and abundant. But if you live for yourself, brothers and sisters, if you live for yourself, you will live a life of anxiety and frustration. Some of the saddest people I've ever met are some of the wealthiest people I've ever met. 
They've pursued the American dream. They pursued wealth and power. And at the end of their life, they recognized that maybe they were climbing the wrong ladder. You know, um, John Piper talks about this story. Um, in April of 2000, Ruby um, Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. And the news reported it as a great tragedy. As a great tragedy. But John Piper says, no, I don't think it was a tragedy in this way. He said, Ruby was over 80 years old, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over a cliff, and they were both killed instantly. I asked my congregation, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great passion, namely to be spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Even two decades after most of their American counterparts had retired to throw away their lives on trifles. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. These lives were not wasted and these lives were not lost. You see in Mark chapter 8 it says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. He goes on to say, and this is where the famous part of the book comes. He goes, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from February 1998 edition of the Reader's Digest. Um, for those of you who don't understand what the Reader's Digest was, that was a blog that came to your house and something called the mail. Um, <laughs> just so you know. And then people would just read it wherever, all right? Which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and, and, and let the great, last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this— playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace this tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. You see, he was thinking about John chapter 12 when he wrote this. Because it says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he will follow me. Now, this idea of, you know, um, following Jesus, you know, you guys know this. It's hard to be a follower of Jesus in America today. It's hard. And I don't think it's because of the difficulty, although it is becoming more difficult, but it's becoming, it's difficult because of the easiness of living here. Because we love the trinkets, spending billions of dollars to be on the merry-go-round of normality, <laughs> just spinning around. Think about this. Are we numbing ourselves through the trinkets and the things that we pursue? Think about this one, for example. Think about people who are pursuing um, clothing, for example, right? You know, you want the best clothes. Think about the clothes that you're wearing now. In 20 years, you will all make fun of the clothes that you're wearing now. 
You'd be like, I can't believe I wore that. Unless, you know, I don't know maybe you have a, a blue-collared shirt and you just kind of wear that all the time, right? But think about that. The, the clothes you wore 20 years ago, and yet we pursue these things. Or think about people who are pursuing the greatest car that they can get. They can't even see themselves in the car they're driving, but it's all about pride. Or it's a bigger house or whatever it is. You see, those things distract us from the ultimate goal. You know, as we think about pursuing Jesus, we shouldn't waste our life pursuing the trinkets of this world. You know, John Piper, he also says this, he says, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do know, but you have to know the few great things that matter, perhaps just one, and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. They've been mastered by Jesus. And they recognize that I just want everybody that I talk to and everybody that I know to know Jesus. You know, again, we live in America and it's a great country. We have a lot of things. But I'm here to tell you, if you're living your life so that you can leave an inheritance to your children after you die that's apart from Jesus, you're leaving them nothing. As a matter of fact, if you have a lot of money and you leave it to your children, the likelihood is that you will ruin them. So we spend our life pursuing these things to give our children something that might actually cause them great harm. Think about that. We should be giving them Jesus. We should be giving them what does it mean to be forgiven and loved? What does it mean? Because again, at the end of your life, I'm just here to tell you, at the end of your life, you know what your children are going to have? They're going to have a garage sale or an estate sale based upon the quality of the stuff that you leave them. But I'm telling you, regardless, it's going to be a sale. That antique table that your great-great-grandmother will be in some dorm room or some college, you know, house. That antique will be there. And yet we spend our whole life trying to accumulate these trinkets, thinking that they will give us some sort of meaning. And at the end of your life, it's going to be a sale. Now, in terms of dying to self, let me leave you with this illustration um, there was a, there's a great man, his name is George Mueller. And George Mueller, in the midst of understanding, here's, here's just a, th- a few things about George Mueller. Um, he was, again, lived in the 1800s from 1805 to 1898. He was one of the founders of the Plymouth Brethren movement, which was at that time was a conservative Christian movement. Uh, later during um, his life, he, he was a great carer of orphans. And he cared for over his life more than 10,000 orphans during his life. He just continued to build houses uh, and orphanages, and he provided educational opportunities for the orphans to the point that he was even accused, get this, he was even accused of some by raising the poor above their natural station in Britain. What a terrible individual, that he might educate the poor orphans above their natural station He established 117 schools which offered Christian education to more than 120,000 young um, British citizens. Now, George Mueller exercised a wide influence for God. And when someone asked him, what has been the secret of your life? George Mueller hung his head and said, 
there was a day, there was an hour, there was a time when I died. Then he bent lower and said, died to George Mueller. His opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame, even of brethren or friends. And he did that so that he might be a seed that would die and produce fruit upon fruit upon fruit. The beauty for us is that we have a Savior, a Savior who dies for us so that then we might be reconciled, so that then we might be able to die to self, so that we might bear much fruit. And this table represents his death for us. You see, this bread represents his body, which is broken for you. And this cup represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as we drink this cup and as often as we eat this bread, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. You see, when we come to the table, we come knowing that we are sinners in need of a Savior. If you believe and trust in Jesus as your only hope for salvation, then we welcome you to this table. If you do not trust in Jesus, if you're unsure about who Jesus is, then do not partake, but rather trust Jesus this day. Come talk to an elder up front. Come talk to me. Talk to me about what you believe about Jesus and enter into the family of God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, These elements will always remain bread and juice, but Father, you pour forth your grace upon grace upon us. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would die to self and live for you, and that in the midst of our dying to self, that there would be an abundant harvest. Father, help us to be like Andrew and bring others to the table, others to the family of God. Father, help us to trust and believe in Jesus. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would know the forgiveness and love that you have lavished upon your people. It is amazing. So, Father, help us as we come. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.